from across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. In this presentation, uh, we will be concentrating on the cutting edge, if you like, of glider design, but with it in a historical context. Um, so you won't be seeing a lot of pictures of, of work a day club sailplanes. I hope they will all be um, interesting neo prototypes and hopefully um, one or two of them will surprise some of you who uh, have not, maybe haven't seen them before. Um, the aims of what we want to go over tonight is obviously a, a historical overview of the way we go about designing a glider um, and hopefully to show you some of the issues that sailplane designers have had in pursuing uh, or continuing pursuit of aerodynamic performance. Um, to try and keep it as broad as possible, I want where possible to contrast where features of the designs um, actually have synergy with mainstream aviation or where in fact mainstream aviation may have assisted us or maybe the other way around, you never know. Um, and finally, um, Largely in a family's part, we want to look forward to how gliders might be improved in the future. Um, but before I do all that, I'm, I'm very conscious that um, there will obviously be a lot of glider pilots in the audience, but there will be some people who don't know about gliders. Um, so I'm going to take the uh, first 10 slides or so just to show you um, what we do and what we find fascinating about soaring um, and how that relates to the vehicles that we fly. Um, the key point about a glider is that it needs ascending air to stay airborne. Um, none of us really want to come down straight away. So we use these forms of lift. I'm not going to discuss the forms of lift, but what you can understand very readily from this diagram is that within the atmosphere, they're all very localised. And it's actually quite hard to keep uh, a glider manoeuvring in the right place, whether it be in a thermal bubble on the right um, or in a narrow band of lift against a hill or in lee waves in the atmosphere. That's, that's a little bit more leisurely. But nevertheless, the, the key point as far as the glider is concerned is that we've got to be manoeuvrable um, and we've got to be able to accurately fly the aeroplane where we need to get to. Um, You've all seen pictures like this, I'm sure. The only point I'm really trying to make is that um, in the diagram on the right, T is zero, and in order to counteract the drag of the glider, um, the aeroplane has to be tilted in almost an imperceptibly amount forwards um, just to give you that little component of lift that takes out the drag. Um, and at that point, you're flying entirely steady and stably. You're just losing height very, very gently. Um, obviously if you try to manoeuvre and uh, or you need to exercise any other form of uh, control over the aeroplane that sink rate goes up marginally um, that's for you to manage as a pilot um, equally the other thing which is the really relieving piece about gliders is that the lift drag ratio is the same as the angle that you're descending and that is true wherever you go so what do we do well we I'm going to talk about thermal lift because it's probably the most widespread form of lift. Basically, to remain airborne and to carry out some sensible flight, you need to find good lift in thermals under nice puffy clouds and you need to fly between them. Um, all this process 
has been formalised in mathematics by Paul McCready, the, um, the well-known human-powered um, engineer who was also happened to have been a world champion in his time on gliding. Um, carried out this way, it's a mathematically consistent and closed problem. Um, it isn't like that in real life, but we use this climb-glide pattern to assist us in modelling. It's our role model for the way we create, the way we design gliders. We have to have good manoeuvrability at high lift to stay within the thermal, and we need a clean glide to glide between the two thermals. The McCready process isn't perfect, um, and in fact, flying skill has a huge difference um, in terms of the way in which you perform with respect to your sort of McCready profile, if you like. A good pilot can beat it on almost any day. Um, a poor pilot will probably aspire to it on any day. So having, it's, it's, it's nearly the sort of two-point design problem that you have in an airliner. You need a clean cruise, and in the airliner's case, of course, you need a safe approach configuration, which you might generally approximate to the high lift approach a high lift process that you lose climbing under you use climbing under a cloud um, but it isn't quite as closed as that because the better the lift you get the faster you fly so you actually want a vehicle that's very efficient over a very wide range of airspeeds so how does that all condense down into what we want out of a glider um, as i've explained we want glide range to cover the ground and search for lift we want the ability to climb in very localised areas and we want a wide speed range to suit varying conditions. That, if you like, is the, the residue of the, of the McCready flying process. So what does this mean in design attributes? Well, we want low drag and we want more low drag and we want low drag over a wide speed range and we want low drag at low speed in order to generate very efficient lift. We want the ability to use a range of wing loadings to be efficient over a range of speeds. That's all the um, performance side of it. Obviously, at the bottom line is we also want something that's airworthy and safe. And it wants low drag as well. Did I mention that? Um, a glider's got a polar, much like any other glider. Uh, any other aeroplane, I'm sorry. Um, this is the sort of build-up of the drag that you see, the bottom line there, the total drag line, is the usual near parabolic shape that you get out of any aeroplane when the engine's switched off. Um, obviously the engine's always switched off as far as we're concerned, and that's just to give you an idea of where the various bits of drag matter. The induced drag, the drag due to creating lift, increases with decreasing airspeed. All the other bits and pieces, the tailplane, the profile drag, the fuselage, all increase dramatically with speed, as I'm sure you're all aware from any flight mechanics lecture. Uh, again, on the construction there, you see uh, lift-drag ratio, which for the glider on the bottom corner would be something of the order of 45 to 50. Um, so you can go, for every foot along, you can go a very, very long way. Ah, that was two, wasn't it? Yeah. No. Sorry, looking at the wrong one. Um, so how do we lay this out? Um, as far as profile drag is concerned, the overbearing um, proportion, as you've seen in the past slide, is the wing. Um, the 
agent generating the lift has to be very efficient, both in terms of its, um, its profile drag, its skin friction, and indeed the configuration of the aeroplane to make that lift work. We need low skin friction, we need low induced drag, we need low parasitic drag, we have to get rid of all the undercarriages, discontinuities, seals, leaks, gaps. Trim drag is relatively easily dispatched by having uh, a relatively small tail on a long moment arm. And these days, we actually like to fill our gliders up with water in order to make them go faster. Um, because in fact, they can they retain their lift drag efficiency um, regardless of what the weight might be. It's just a matter of that you will achieve that efficiency at a faster speed the heavier you are. So if you're really racing, you want to be nice and heavy. Lift drag ratio we will talk about a lot. Um, it's a very important parameter. Um, it's a very easy parameter to discuss. It's not the whole story, but I think as far as this lecture is concerned and as far as the, 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 uh, what we're trying to get across here, you can take it that that is the aerodynamic parameter that we're trying to maximise under all conditions. Here's a plot that a family has provided me with to show you how lift-drag ratio has improved over the years. Obviously, there's a huge scatter on this diagram. There'll be a lot of scatter on a lot of the diagrams I'm showing you. But if you view it across getting on for, blimey, it's nearly a century there, isn't it? Um, superficially, there appears to be a pretty well linear increase in drag performance right through from the early days in the 1920s and 30s right through to the present day. Um, and we'll be returning to that slide um, in later in the programme to see what might happen in the future. And again, you can see the, the various configurations of glider that were extant at those particular times. Uh, here endeth the first lesson. I hope you now all feel briefed up about what gliders are about and um, what, we're, what we're trying to do in this game. So I will now move to the... Um, essential part of the lecture um, and do a historical review. Um, I won't insult you with the, um, all the stories about ever since man was, came out of the caves, he wanted to be like a bird or whatever. Well, none of that. I'm going to pitch in in the 1920s when we were flying basically off hills. People were pushing gliders off a hill because the only thing they knew how to do was to stay up and sit in a hill and squat there. Um, I hope there's not too many hang glider pilots about, but like hang gliders do today. Um, what did we need for that? Well, we needed a big wing that was ever so slow um, and was capable of flying around at roughly wind speed um, because that was all we could think of doing because our lift was confined by the... Um, the uh, the um, range of the hill. These are what we loosely call these days light wind soarers. As you can see, they're very, very lightly built. Um, they have a good analogy to uh, modern hang gliders. They're just an awful lot more complicated to build, basically. Um, but in the early 20s, people began to realise that there were these things called thermals about the place. And if you actually managed to catch one, it was quite nice not to have to go back to the hill and go and find another one. Um, so suddenly everybody wanted to go places. Um, and the best way of going places 
in those days was to improve your aspect ratio. That is to say, the, loosely, the span divided by the cord of the glider, um, because this essentially creates uh, a wing which is closer to the perfect two-dimensional wing that goes on forever and doesn't create any induced drag. So suddenly everybody wanted gliders that were a great deal bigger. Uh, the creature on the left-hand side is a hill-squatting glider of 1922. Once Robert Kronfeld came across from... Germany showed us how to do these thermal things and provided us with a little meter that enabled us to know whether we were going up or down, otherwise known as a variometer. Um, suddenly the whole clever idea was to fly across country, but we needed bigger gliders. Um, now, that in itself is an aerodynamic requirement, but you can't actually build a bigger wing without imbuing it with a structure. So as you can see, the second glider, circa 1928, um, has a much bigger wingspan, it's something of the order of 18 metres, um, but in order to realise that wingspan, we have to hold it up because we can't, the structural engineers can't hold the bending at the wing root. So we have struts, which of course are not particularly aerodynamically efficient, but they got by in 1928. Um, everybody at that point was working with what we call in this day and age the enabling technology of structures to try and create the machine that we required. And ultimately, by 1934, uh, we had machines such as the, the Fafnir at the bottom end, which has a full cantilever wing. If you look in your structures books, you'll find that the bending moment on a wing such as that goes up with a square of span. So having... Excuse me, I want to go on one more. So, having had this huge rise in span and aspect ratio on yet another happy scatter diagram, you can see from there, from 1920 to 1940, spans and aspect ratios virtually doubled. Um, so that's going to be four times on your bending moment, um, and that's before you've tried to uh, do away with the struts and all that sort of thing. Quite hard technology in those days. I'll just go back one. Those are pictures of the two gliders I showed slides of before. The top one is called the Professor and was designed by um, Herr Lippisch, who I'm sure many of you will be aware of in terms of uh, 1940s German designs. Um, and the Fafnir, which was the, the, the elegant glider, uh, you will note one of the things that results from, again, this limitation in structure is that you wind up with very narrow wingtips and very big wing roots and you can see down here on the bottom side um, blending the wing into the fuselage is really quite some challenge. Done that. What were we doing in UK? Well we, we weren't actually too bad at it. Um, Neville Shoot Norway designed the Turn which was a smallish but nevertheless cantilever glider. Nice big heavy wing roots again you will notice. Um, and uh, a, a journeyman designer called Mungo Buxton designed a thing called the Hordes, which was designed for Philip Wills. Um, not a huge glider, 15 metre span, but again, very highly tapered wings in order to presumably minimise the bending moment. Um, how did the structural engineers get on with these bending moments? Well, there were one or two things that were going for them. If you look carefully at the Fafnir picture, you'll have seen that wing sections of that time were actually ever so thick. 
Um, the popular light wind Sora wing section was Gottingen 535. Um, clearly a structural designer could put no, quite nice hefty spar into that. Um, why do we have these great fat wing sections? Well, I'll come to my first graph which is is lift coefficient against drag coefficient. For those of you who know about lift and drag coefficients, I don't need to explain. If you don't know about these things, drag is actually pulling you backwards from left to right, and the scale on the vertical so it could be seen as um, speed range, uh, that is to say, or, or, or incidence, um, high incidence, low speed at the top, and low speed, sorry, high, what am I saying? I've been practicing this, practicing this, I'm sorry. Low speed and high incidence at the top, low incidence and high speed at the bottom. A very a, a narrow wing section, such as this 5% animal, has the little tiny peaky section in the middle, ca ca section characteristic in the middle. It has a very limited drag range. Um, not good news for gliders. And as you fatten a given wing section, you actually improve your range of speeds. So once you get to 20%, you're actually pulling in this um, widest, but nevertheless accepting a slight drag penalty at the operating point. So we like nice big fat wings. Over the, over the decades, glider wings thicknesses have gone in and out in fashion. Sometimes they get up as high as more than 20% sometimes down to 10. It just depends on how we're thinking of doing it at the time. So there we have it. Uh, a glider like the Fafnir or the Hordes has a nice big fat wing section with nice big wide booms to hold it all together. And of course you do also have to join it at the root where you use um, a, large, a large array of bolts and um, pins to make sure everything hangs together. So that's my first discussion of an enabling technology. It's a very early one, um, but it basically subsumed the whole of design in the early, in the late pre-war era. Production gliders appeared. Um, here are three, the Kranich, the Minimoa and the Vire. Um, I think I'd like to draw particular attention to the Vire in that that picture gives you a very good idea of what is a classical um, wing layout for a pre-war glider. The Kranich was a two-seater, um, the Mini Mower also was uh, a very effective glider, um, although obviously characterised by very distinct gull wings. Again, how had we been doing in England? Well, the Slingsby Company was operating and were producing these sorts of gliders, gliders like the Petrel, again, note the huge thick wing section, um, and the gull. Uh, in all honesty, they were probably loosely cribs of previous German gliders. The Petrel has a very close family relationship with the Fafnir and the Rhone Adler. Um, the gull perhaps is a more um, mainstream, a more homespun design, if you will. So where have we got to by the time the Second World War came along? Well, the Germans were clearly the the lead organisation. They even realised that gliders get better as they get bigger, like just about everything else in this world. Um, this was Kronfeld's Austria glider, which had an enormous span of nearly 100 feet, 30 metres. 
Um, it wasn't particularly successful, and indeed it was lost because it broke up in a cloud, I suspect because, again, the, the stressing wasn't as bright as it might have been. Um, but uh, certainly in terms of, uh, of scale and effort, um, that is very much a, a pinnacle. Perhaps a better glider um, was this, the uh, Darmstadt D30. Um, this actually had a metal spar and those of you who are students of aerodynamic design will see that actually it has a striking similarity to some of the gliders that we have today. Um, it managed to, this is pre-war, before laminar wing sections came along, it achieved a lift drag ratio of over 1 in, one in 37, which is a pretty steady glide angle to have in a relatively small glider today. Um, it was also flying on a, a knacker section, which I flipped past earlier, 4415. The basic lift-drag ratio of the wing section alone is only just greater than 100. So 37% of what you get out of the wing, of the wing alone is a, is, is a very significant efficiency. One of the intriguing things about this is that it had variable dihedral and it was variable in flight. Um, and nobody knows why and they didn't really need it anyway. So, come the war, I'm afraid mo most of these devices, the Austria had gone anyway, the, um, the Vyers and the Minimoas and the Kranichs, uh, many were destroyed um, to, stop the Allies, to stop them falling into Allies' hands. The whole technology of the 1930s German glider development was largely lost except for the carriage of the, some one or two vires and the odd minimower, which individuals managed to bring home, loosely speaking, as war booty. The only real legacy we got over the war period was the Olympia. Um, in their wisdom, the Olympic Committee decided they were going to have gliding in the 1940 Olympics. Um, great idea, pity about the date. Um, and like everything in Olympics, it had to be a standardised piece of equipment. And this was the winning piece of equipment, the, the German Miser, later called Olympia. And the beauty of that act was that the entire design, all the plans, I don't, I don't even know the jigs may even be, were preserved throughout the war. And this aeroplane became very much the mainstay of gliding clubs uh, right across Europe. It was built in four or five different countries under different names um, until everybody really recovered their feet after the war. I want to talk about design evolution now. Um, it's an appropriate time to do it because during the 50s, designs evolved in a relatively slow manner, um, uh, but in particular, picking up the um, slightly prickly problem of laminar aerofoils. Laminar aerofoils have been known by NACA in the States. Uh, in the late 30s, they'd been proven to, uh, in wind tunnels to be particularly effective in terms of reduced drag. And indeed, um, as many of you know, um, there's a, a fable that the Mustang fighter was the fighter it was because it had a laminar wing section. Um, I know historians can argue interminably over that one about whether it was the wing or whether it was the cooling system or whatever. But um, 
really speaking, it was only when gliders came along in the 50s and started picking up on and using laminar sections that I think we demonstrated um, and people came to realise that laminar sections were actually workable. Um, the smooth flow of the boundary layer over the early part of a nice fat wing like that one um, really did actually make a great deal of difference to the overall aerodynamic performance. Before we do that, I have to show you this slide. Um, this is Slingsby's pride and joy, um, the Slingsby Sky, which was flown um, to first place in the World Championships by Philip Wills in 1952. Um, Slingsby himself would admit to you that it was actually a bit of a crib on the vire. Um, and you can also see that it has quite marked similarities to the Olympia glider that I showed you earlier. Um, Sorry, that's a, that's a compulsory advert for UK gliding, that one. Um, Germany was, of course, in no real place to put together a gliding industry. Um, everybody was quite hard up in the 50s, um, but Germany more so than most. And for some period, I, I believe that actually the Polish industry was the lead. Um, they produced quite... Sophisticated gliders, the Jaskolka had quite a sophisticated flap system and you will see through the development of these designs the efforts that were made to reduce cross sections, to reduce parasitic drag, um, to improve trim drag and all the, all the other little tiny things that add up to a smooth glider. I put the bottom left hand picture in there, literally to show you the man with his bottom stuck against the leading edge. You can see how low the focal was to the ground and how lower cross-sectional area it had. And I've also put in this workshop picture of a focal being refurbished. You can see um, you're basically lying in a bath flying that glider. Um, it's not a seat anymore. Um, it's, a, it's a very reclined posture. So um, there's a shot of an evolution in glider designs that took place in Poland. Um, incidentally, during that process, they invoked the laminar wing sections um, on the Fokker. Um, I think the other two were traditional sections. So what's a laminar wing section all about? Well, take the, if you take the top slide, um, this is a section that has been used in extreme, extremely widespread in, in UK gliders. And you can see again, whilst it's very, very different from the Gottingen 535 that we looked at earlier, it's still ever so fat. Um, I mean, I'm at the mercy of PowerPoint here in getting the thicknesses right, you understand, but they're, they're pretty damn close. Um, the other thing you'll notice about this wing section compared to the the Goddingham 535 we looked at earlier, is that its maximum thickness point is a great deal further back along the cord and that there's a, uh, a continuing acceleration process of the local flow around the front of the wing protecting a nice smooth thin boundary layer until you get virtually to the maximum thickness where and this was the aerodynamic trick at the time, you controlled transition to a turbulent boundary layer without it detaching um, so that it performed reasonably all the way down to the, to the trailing edge. These are bespoke wing sections. They're all in NACA literature and they've been used extremely widely right across general aviation. The middle slide here 
is the... No, I won't come on. Let me, let me press on for now. Um, here's another example. These are all laminar gliders using that NACA section. Um, this is Slingsby's evolution of the Skylark 2, top left, the Skylark 3, top right, the Skylark 4, bottom left, and the two-seat Eagle glider, bottom right. This is the nearest thing in this presentation you'll see to a club glider, basically. Um, they are all very much the same generic design, but again, just like the Polish design, you can see how from the Skylark 2 through the 3 to the 4, um, the cross sections have been, uh, have been lowered, um, the wing junction has been improved, um, the tails have been adjusted. It's a slow evolutionary approach. And these were, believe me, very successful gliders and were probably the most marketable and commercially successful gliders the UK ever produced. Um, just one snag, we were evolving, but I don't really think we were evolving fast enough. Go back to this slide. FX stands for a gentleman by the name of Felix Vortman, who is a prime aerodynamic, or one of those days, a prime designer of wing sections for gliders. And I've said before, um, half of the design of a glider is its wing section. Doesn't actually look desperately different to the NACA section, but probably preserves its thickness a little bit further aft. But what Wartman managed to do was to can carefully control the transition of the laminar wing section such that he also optimised the turbulent flow on the latter half of the wing. Um, it might sound like a minor trick, but in fact it made a great deal of difference to gliders. Not so much in actual drag, but in terms of the speed range. You remember my previous picture with the... The, the range of operation, Vortman's 18% section was, at the time, a very, very heavily used um, fixed geometry section. The lower section, which I'll remind you of again later, is actually a much more modern section. The, 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 the 79 is indeed year. Um, that's, a, that's a section with a flap. I'll tell you about flaps in a minute, but it's thinner. Um, mainly because you can use the flap to adjust the configuration of the wing section as if it was a fatter wing, if you will. Associated with Wartman, all sorts of other clever people were working away in Germany. The Phoenix glider, in particular, was designed with composites. And this was really the revolution. Um, those of you who know about gliders will have heard of Mr. Epley, he's a wing section designer. You'll have heard of Mr. Lindley, he's a well-known pilot. The key guy in here is Nagler. He was, a, he was a materials engineer. He was the guy who worked out how to do glass fibre gliders. The Phoenix was very much the first, but folks experimented with quite small gliders. They, the little Crea, I think, was a one-off, which was subsequently destroyed by fire. Hanley's Libelle, that's a very modern picture, mainly because the Libelle is still a very highly regarded glider. It was designed in 62, 63, hasn't been touched since. But this is the one that really got everybody excited. Uh, this is the Darmstadt D36. Um, those of you who fly high-performance gliders um, 
Well, I'm sure agree with me. If you look at the top right hand picture there, that would not look out of place on a grid today. Um, yeah, it had its limitations. You can see from the lower picture, the wing was extremely flexible. Um, but really, those four guys put together that glider, which has revolutionised gliding for the next 40 years. Three out of four of them became chief designers in glider houses. Um, and it, at a stroke, Germany came back into gliding and all these upstarts like the Poles and the Brits, I'm afraid we didn't feature anymore. I want to talk to you about flaps a little bit. Here's that wing section I spoke to you before. This is a modern glider. Um, flaps on gliders are not like flaps on aeroplanes. They're, they're a gear stick, if you like, and they enable you to make your glider more efficient over a wider range of speeds, just like the gear stick in your motor car. I won't say any more because I want to press on. Here's a glass fibre glider. Cutaway. Look inside. There's nothing there. The controls are all installed, um, preset pre and installed within the halves of the shell. And the whole thing is put together around the controls and the spar um, and the, the actual outer shape, the smooth evolving outer shape is provided in moulds. In the UK at the time, we didn't really believe in this glass fibre stuff. We thought metal was the answer. Here's a similar picture of a metal glider. Look what's inside there. To keep the surface smoothness on very thin metal, you're looking at a rib every three or four inches. How many is that in 20 metres? Quite a lot of ribs. Same thing goes in the fuselage and everywhere else. It, unfortunately, light alloy, because of its, its strength, you need very thin sections. And thin sections are very difficult to stabilise. Um, people tried to do it with bits of foam and balsa wood and what you will, but I'm afraid to say that, really speaking, we found that metal gliders really didn't work. Here's a quick picture of some Germans building some glass fibre gliders in a 1971 workshop. Obviously, workshops look a lot cleaner than that these days, but you can see it was very much a cottage industry. Of course, there were problems with glass fibre, um, not the least, aeroelasticity and flutter. This is a very modern glider. You can see the sort of static bending that we get in wings these days. If you compare that to the ground shot of the D36, you'll see tip flexures are quite monstrous in tens of feet. Flutter is a big issue for glass fibre because it has a low modulus. Um, and we needed to develop a whole, again, an enabling technology to counter the flutter um, that occurred in gliders. Mercifully, most of these vibrations are relatively soft. Your, your aeroplane doesn't burst into a destructive haze of bits and pieces. It, um, it tends to be relatively um, as we say, soft flutter modes, but as you can imagine, it doesn't cheer the pilot up any if he runs into one of these. Key parameters, like, just like in a normal aeroplane, a wing torsional stiffness, and care has to be taken with mass balancing controls. Here we have a glider that's actually under test and being fluttered. And I'm hoping that I can actually show you this left one. Next slide, sorry. Next 
That's quite a high frequency flutter. That's a lower one. We've just picked a quick clip out of these. Um, the majority of glider flutter issues tend to be asymmetric rather than symmetric. Um, and they almost invariably involve the ailerons rattling about because, of course, the ailerons are just as long and thin as the wings. So, all this evolution stuff was very well, but, hey, we were panicking. We didn't know what to do, so we had to find a revolutionary way of improving gliders. Um, and in UK, this is what we went for, a variable geometry glider. You'll recall in the 60s we had variable geometry fighters and... Um, all sorts of stuff. This was a way of doing a variable geometry glider. The red section on the wing there is painted the different colour for a reason. It retracts and it enables you um, at the flick of a lever in the cockpit to reconfigure your wing um, from that configuration there to a higher aspect ratio configuration with a much lower wing area. You could do it two ways of course. Um, change the area through cord or you can change it through span. Um, there were a group of Germans who had a plan for doing a span changer glider. Um, it did fly but I don't believe that anybody got a great deal out of it. Here's a picture of the British Sigma glider in flight with the flap out and the flap in. You can see there's quite an astonishing difference in um, configuration. Obviously with less wing area on the right hand side this thing flies very very, should be able to fly very very fast but of course it needed to be efficient. The Germans tried the same thing on a smaller glider. The key difference with the German glider was that they cut some compromises in the shaping of the flap here. Our Sigma glider had a flexible shroud at this point. And unfortunately, it buzzed and it fluttered and, of course, in doing so, ruined the performance. The German glider had not actually just a constant core, but it had a thinned affair like this, so that, in fact, all aspects of this current section were rigid. And um, it was successful in the context that it won a world championships, um, but it was piloted by a guy called Helmut Reichmann who held three or four world championships and he was well quoted as saying that he felt he won in spite of the glider rather than because of it. <laughs> None of these gliders have ever reached production. Um, there's various pictures of, of us flying Sigma out of Cranfield on test trying desperately to get this um, flexible shroud to work. Um, I'm afraid it never did in that configuration. It was eventually transferred to a Canadian um, who took out the variable flap uh, and put in a conventional flap. And I gather it flew very successfully in that mode. Here we see the sort of complexity you see in Sigma. A huge trunnions over the top of the wing there and a hydraulic jack to push the flap in and out and indeed the poor pilot had to had to pump on the rudder pedals in order to keep the hydraulic accumulator um, charged in order to do flap changes. Meanwhile back in Germany they produced this device the SP10 we actually now got back to the Austria this is 30 meters 
and a two-seater. And many of you who fly gliders will now know that uh, one of the pinnacles of gliding operation is that we now have two-seaters that are at least as efficient as single-seaters. We have the Ash 25 and the Nimbus 3. Um, this, again, is the progenitor of that exercise. So do you evolve or do you go revolutionary? Revolutionary costs you an awful lot if you get it wrong. Um, careful evolution with sensible production backup is what you need. Sorry, give me a little. You want that? Okay, can you, can you all hear me? Right, let's get this clipped on. So this is the second uh, part of the presentation now, and I really want to um, talk about... Sorry. Talk about deafening you. Talk about what the future may hold. So we'll come back to this, uh, this slide that you've seen already. This um, is a rather neat line that you could draw through the points, but it's really through... Uh, at the right-hand side, only a, only a few gliders which are really one-off or limited production runs, very, very, very expensive gliders. Um, how, will that trend continue or not? That's what I'm aiming to, to cover. So um, on the right-hand side of that curve, this glider here is a glider called Concordia. It's a one-off. It's built by a very talented and wealthy American gentleman called Dick Butler. That's him here. He's got form in modifying big open-class gliders, and this is probably the last one he'll ever do. It flew in the World Championships um, in Texas. He didn't win, but it was um, considered by the open-class pilots to be a very hot glider indeed, very high performance. 28 metres wingspan, aspect ratio almost 60. Um, tremendously long, thin, flexible wings. And a lift-drag ratio, no one really knows, it's not been measured. And, and when you get up above 60 or 70, it's a very difficult thing to measure accurately, but somewhere in the region of 70, perhaps even as high as 75. Um, and in my view, this is the, perhaps the ultimate non-laminar flow suction control glider that we'll see. Um, I'd like to be proved wrong, but I, I don't think so. So that's the sort of current state of the art in the open class. Um, enabling technology. So when Howard asked me to put this presentation together, he said, can you, can you uh, look to the future and explain what's going to help us improve gliders? One thing that uh, gliders do much better than almost every other aircraft, apart from perhaps um, airliners, is the design of the wing fuselage junction, which is often overlooked on light aircraft. You can see here at the bottom, here's a, here's a, a glider fuselage, and the airflow flowing up over the wing, it's got an angle of attack induced by the, uh, the wingtip vortices, so a, a higher angle of attack. By the fuselage, that effect is exaggerated by the thickness of the fuselage, and you can have up to twice the angle of attack on the wing. Um, that has an effect, you have a horseshoe vortex system wrapped around the wing where it's quite draggy, and the transition to, to turbulent flow from laminar flow is swept forward all the way to the leading edge. Um, Delft University in Holland pioneered a technique for reducing that um, area of interference. And it's illustrated here. This is the Yonkers JS1. There's a picture of it on the next slide. It's a modern 18-meter glider. And um, what they do is they tailor the wing section. So out here, it's a normal laminar flow aerofoil. But as you go in towards the root, the section changes. That's the normal section there, one metre out from the tip. And can you see how it's changing shape here? So it's going from quite a sort of flat bottom section, quite thin. It's thickening up and it's becoming a more turbulent aerofoil. 
and it's also twisting. If you look carefully down the wing, you can, it, the, the aerofoil uh, twists around the flap hinge line, which has to be straight, of course, and it's um, twisting nose down as it goes into the fuselage. And that effect has, a, 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 um, that has the effect of reducing turbulent wedge in the, in the junction by about a factor of two, so quite a significant improvement. The other um, thing that gliders do particularly well is shaping the fuselage as a minimum skin around, uh, around the pilot. And um, this is a, a JS1C, 21-metre current state-of-the-art, um, open-class, 18-metre glider. See, the fuselage is actually, if you took a mean line, so a mid-thickness line, it sort of bends down at the front and bends down at the back. Um, if you had a fuselage which was just like this, there's an induced upflow from the wing, so we have an increasing... Um, upwash in front of the wing and a downwash behind um, and that wouldn't be very efficient so they actually bend the fuselage shape down into the flow ahead of the wing and bend it down um, with the flow behind the wing and you end up with this sort of tadpole type shape and that is a very efficient shape. This, this chart this shows you that the front of the glider is in fact um, laminar so we have a, a, an increasing um, thickness of the fuselage that gives us a very favourable pressure gradient. And if you keep all the gaps nice and tight where the, where the canopy is, we can have laminar flow back almost as far as the wing on the fuselage. So it's very important to wipe the dead flies off your nose if you're going gliding. People um, often don't clean their, their gliders very well there. Um, another thing, winglets. Now, winglets are not new. They've been flying on airliners um, in, in a test uh, configuration since the mid-1970s. Gliding was a little bit late to adopt them. But they're particularly well suited where um, glider classes have a limited span, so standard class, 15 metre class. They can't, can't have a wingspan more than 15 metres. So how do you get more um, effective aspect ratio? You bend the, the end of the wing up like this. So here's a wing. This is, in fact, the ASW27 wing geometry. This is my thesis project at Delft University in 1995. And uh, here's a, a typical winglet. This one's half a metre tall. And this is the CFD grid, so we can do the numerical aerodynamics. Um, on there. And um, what I want to say is if, if we've got a winglet which is half a metre tall, this is on a 15 metre glider, and it's perfectly optimally optimised, the aerodynamic loading on it is, is absolutely perfect, that's as good as having a, a span extension of almost 30 centimetres. So it can be a very efficient way of getting some more performance out. How does it work? It basically, these are our wingtip vortices. Here's a wing. These are the tip vortices. These are the nasty high-energy trailing vortices, and we're basically spreading this vortex out over a bit more air. We've got the same momentum, but we've got less kinetic energy, less drag. If we want to get to 100 to 1, and wouldn't it be marvellous to fly a glider with a lift-drag ratio of 100, um, we could do that, and we could do it if we follow this line, which I suggest we wouldn't do. Um, we could do it with conventional technology in, in 2040. It, we could do it today if we had the money. But we need a wingspan of 40 metres. This was a study that Delft University did. Um, I don't know any of you who've um, been on an airfield and someone's asked, can you help rig my Ash 25? Can you rig my SW17? I would want to be well away from the airfield when someone's rigging that glider. It's going to be a very heavy, unwieldy machine and expensive too. So there is a better way of doing it, and that's to use boundary layer suction. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Um, but uh, with a 30-metre wingspan, so sort of, a big glider, but not, not unduly so, uh, we can get 22 points extra on the glide angle. We can get up to 100. Um, that's not a new idea. In, interesting, if you look back on this chart and say, well, when uh, the NACA Air Force came in, what was the influence on performance with the laminar flow? 
and we went from about 30 up to sort of high 30s, about eight points. So the point I want to make is boundary layer suction is a revolution. It's, um, it, it will come one day, and when it happens, the, the aircraft will be dramatically better. Uh, it will be a bigger, bigger leap than we've ever had, even with composites and laminar flow. So this chap uh, here on the left, that's um, Werner Fenniger, Swiss aerodynamicist, very famous. Um, I think designer of the ELF series of, of gliders, so went to go and work at NASA after the war. And he drew this in 1985. This is a 100 to 1 glide angle glider. It's a big glider, it's about 32 metres in wingspan. And his laminar flow suction systems, powered by this little um, two-stage wind turbine, effectively, off the back of the aircraft, turning around and, pr and providing all the suction for pumping the, uh, the boundary layer away. So that's one way of doing it. So enabling technology, suction. What, what do I mean by suction? Here's, a, here's an aerofoil, pretty standard uh, aerofoil shape. There's the spar. Um, and what we do is, um, aft of the main spar where the, where the pressure is starting to rise as we come back towards the trailing edge, this is an adverse pressure gradient, the boundary layer will naturally want to become turbulent. And we have a porous skin uh, in this area, and it's got lots and lots of tiny holes in it. One square metre, ten square feet, that's going to have a million holes drilled in it using some uh, uh, um, automated hole drilling technology. Which All, the, all this work's been done at Delft, by the way. Uh, this Professor Borman's group at Delft have pioneered all this work. And they have a machine where they can drill these holes, so that can be done. And the really clever part is um, it's a sandwich skin, and in the sandwich we have a, um, a composite material with holes in, um, and the air is, flows through the holes in the surface into this chamber, and then out through a series of ducts into, into a pumping system. We'd need, because the pressure here is low and the pressure here is high, if we just had one cavity inside, all that would happen is that the airflow would flow to the low pressure region, so we'd have an internal flow from here to here. We don't want that. So you have to have uh, spam-wise chambers in this arrangement, and Delft think three should be sufficient. It could be powered either by solar cells, perhaps on this bit of the wing, or by a battery, and we suck the air in, and we spit it out at the trailing edge. And if we do that, then the whole of this upper surface is laminar. There is no turbulent flow on the upper surface. It's naturally laminar on the bottom, so we have almost no turbulent flow on the wing, and that gives us a big step forward change in performance. Now, here's, uh, here's what it does for a, a standard-class glider. 15 metres, no flaps. It's a pretty standard sort of thing. ASW28 I've used as an example. This has a lift-drag ratio um, of about 40. If we add suction into the mix, um, you can see the polar curve goes from this one to here, and the lift drag ratio goes from 40 to 60. So that's open-class performance in a little dinky 15-metre glider. It really is a revolution. And the other thing to note is the polar shape is actually flatter at high speed as well, so the high-speed performance dramatically improves. Um, this is what the, the lift drag um, curves look like. This is for the aerofoil. So this is a turbulent flow, no suction section. And if we start sucking, the drag, which is, this is drag, this is lift, this is low speed, this is high speed, the drag gets cut in half, or maybe even a bit more. And also, interestingly, the, 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 this is the lift against angle of attack. We're stalling here at about a, a lift coefficient of about 1.5. With suction, we get up to about 1.8, so we can make the wings smaller. So it's a virtuous circle. It really is dramatic. How much power, how much power does that take to suck that boundary layer away? Well, this is a curve um, I, I drew, I extracted from a paper at Delft. So here we've got the, the lift coefficient. So basically, this is low speed here and high speed. Cruising is around here. 
And this is power consumption watts per square meter. So typical glider wing, about 10 square meters. Um, here, so we need about uh, high speed, 45 watts per square meter. So about 400, 500 watts of power, quite a bit. But at low speed, we don't need to suck as hard and it's down at 12 and a half watts or about 100 and 130 watts for the wing. So those numbers, what, to put those into context, uh, the sun just beating down on the glider, that has about 500 watts per square meter. So if we had solar cells with any efficiency to them, we could power this system easily with, with solar panels. So this is perfectly achievable. In fact, it's been done. This is a glider, not a suction glider, but it's solar cells on the wing powering a little propeller. This is Eric Raymond's Sunseeker. It was the first solar-powered aircraft to fly across the Alps. And I think there's a great big solar-powered plane trying to fly around the world at the moment. So this, this technology is, is, uh, is perfectly feasible. So the next question is, well, if, I'm, if I've got solar cells and, I, and I'm doing all this fancy sucking, wouldn't it be much more efficient just to have a little motor and turn the propeller on the nose instead? Wouldn't quite be a glider. Um, it's a philosophical debate. Um, even if you suck, is it still a glider? But I just wanted to sort of turn to that for a moment, and don't worry, this is about as technical as this presentation gets, but just want to illustrate that it's well worth sucking rather than turning a propeller. So here's our ASW28. This is a sort of low-speed design point, 40 knots or so. Lift coefficient of 1. And if we, uh, we've got a lift drag ratio of about 40. That gives us a, a sinking speed of about half a metre per second, roughly, rough numbers. So to power uh, the glider, um, the suction system seen on the other graphs, 12.5 watts per square metre. It's about 130 watts, not much power for the whole thing. Um, so if I put that 130 watts through an engine, an electric motor, and the electric engine, uh, I assume, has got a, uh, an efficiency of about 94%, and then through a propeller with an efficiency of about uh, 80%, I reduce the sink rate by the, a small amount, about 0.03 meters, meters per second. Gliding's all about small gains. I'm not going to throw that away. But to put that into context... If I turn the suction system on, I've got a lift drag ratio of almost 50. And um, that, if I work out the sinking speed, sinking speed is about 0.46. That's a difference in, in sinking speed, 0 0.55, 0 0.46, 0 0.09. That number is three times better than that one. So I've got this, it's, it's three times better to suck the boundary layer than, than turn a propeller. That's at low speed. It's almost the same story at high speed, not quite but we're still two and a half times better, rough numbers. So it's much more efficient to suck away the boundary layer than it is to turn a propeller. And the glider looks a bit prettier as well, I think. Now, this is all, um, this is all just a PowerPoint slide. People have been standing up at conferences saying lambda flow suction is the next big thing for a very long time. The thing that's different now is it's actually flying on an airliner. This is the Boeing 787. This is the first one, the short one, the 7878. And this is a 7879. And if you look carefully on the tail here and on the fin here, you see these little doors here. And this is a, a natural, it's a hybrid laminar flow control system on an airliner. Uh, and, it, and it works. Boeing have got it to work. So the leading edge de-icing system, that's, uh, that's got lots of little holes in, sucking the boundary layer. It's electrically heated, so it's compatible to so get rid of the ice. And these doors, I don't know how these work, but basically... Um, it's an exhaust, so they've got a flow in this direction. It's going here, and you can see the flow here. There's this little ridge some, somehow. There's a hinge here. There's another hinge here. Somehow in flight, this door opens and sucks, provides a suction, and we're sucking away the boundary layer. And Boeing claimed quite big get drag gains for this system. So it works on an airliner. Uh, the next question is, well, what about the dead flies? You can jet wash this system 
and it still works. Boeing call that the secret source. It's a Boeing secret. I don't know how it works. I'm sure Airbus are looking quite carefully at it. If I was still at Airbus, I would be. Um, so, that's, so that's boundary layer selection. For, that, for me, is the big step forwards. The other interesting thing we're seeing in gliding is electric propulsion. You, we've all seen electric models. Or well, you can buy an electric glider. It looks like this. This is the 20-meter Antares. It's been flying for over, over 10 years now, and this is a self-launching electric motor glider. It's got a 50-horsepower engine, and it's got about 80 kilos, 75 kilos of batteries, lithium-ion batteries in it. Um, it's a pretty impressive machine. And that will take off, you can take off and climb to 10,000 feet just on one charge. Uh, and it's a very efficient, reliable system. But batteries are moving on, or mobile phones are driving this and, and things. So uh, when, the, when the Antares came out, this is battery technology against time. This is, this is a, a thing called energy density. It's a, uh, the amount of energy per kilo of battery. And the Antares batteries are about 136 watt-hours watt per kilo. Um, the current state of the art, so by the way, the Tesla, if you think of Tesla's efficiency, is about the same level of battery, energy density. The US government has set a target for their battery manufacturers up here at 400. So in 2017, they want to be having batteries of 400 watt-hours per kilo. I don't know if we'll get there, but the battery te technology is on this curve. And if we got those, we could put those in the Antares and have three times the amount of climb performance out of the same battery weight. So it really is dramatic. So battery technology is moving on. just want to make a point here about the um, inability of people to buy new gliders, basically. Howard suggested I put this in. I think it's a good idea. Um, to, just to illustrate how expensive gliders have become. So I've talked about laminar flow suction. I've talked about the Antares, which is a very expensive glider. Um, here we've got time. So this is 1970, and this is 2010. And I've um, adjusted all these costs here to uh, 2010 prices using inflation. So here's UK national earnings, and it is actually going up. It might not feel like it. A very gentle slope upwards here. This is how much a mini costs, this line. That's a mini. It's because we've been in production with mini pretty much since then. And it's kind of tracked national earnings. It's actually got a little bit more affordable recently. But it's in, it's in range. We can afford one of those. Gliders, that's a Kestrel. That was a new uh, Kestrel back in 1970. ASW17, that was a second-hand price, but it's not going to be far off new. Nimbus 3, new price on Aventus 2 Turbo, new price on a 29. So this is a ratio of about 3 to 1. Three, year, three years' worth of national earnings could buy you a Kestrel. And we're getting up about around 5 now. So gliders are becoming less and less affordable. These things are very, very expensive to produce. And the, th the reason that the car is becoming, it is so affordable, it's, it's mass production. Whereas gliders, we're a tiny sport. They only made, that's a successful glider, and they've only made 250 of those. But they've made millions of minis. So, so we need to do something different. So I think the future may look, well, what, what will it look like? The, the first point is gliders don't wear out. They don't fatigue. The fatigue life is north of 12,000 hours. So... Um, even the very first glass fibre glider is still flying, the Phoenix that you saw. That was at a vintage rally. So the old fleet of gliders will stick around for a long time and will become very affordable. There'll be a small number of rich guys that can afford the state of the art. That's always been the case. And for those guys, 30 metres, um, laminar flow suction, electric propulsion, yep, yeah, you know, someone will build one and they will buy it. There'll be a small number of those. But I think, um, and I was, this, this, this point came from a conversation in a pub about two weeks ago and I've thought about it and I think it's spot on. I think we'll see an emergence of, of 
sort of hybrids, a cheaper self-launching electric gliders, perhaps with some suction, maybe not. Um, I'll show you a picture in a minute. They, are, they will offer autonomous operation, so you can get in and go flying. You don't need someone to drive a winch or fly a tug. They'll be cheap to operate. You can take your batteries home, plug them in, charge them up overnight. Well suited to a group ownership, you know, um, two or three in a syndicate, and it'll be a lot of fun. And it might look like this. This is the Silent uh, 2E. It's a self-launching electric motor glider. Um, it's, uh, I think currently it's an SSDR, so it's perhaps going to be unregulated, so there's another saving. It's got a little electric engine and a battery pack, and you can take off, you can climb to 2,000 feet, shut the engine down, go flying for the day. If you get low, you can turbo away from the field and climb up again, get a thermal, come home. And so I think really, um, in terms of where we've come from, something like this, perhaps with a bit of laminar flow suction, is uh, what we might be flying in, in now or, or something in, in 10 years' time. So that concludes our presentation. I hope you found it interesting. It's a, a, ga a gallop through gliding history and a, a nod to the future. We'd just like to say thank you very much to the Gliding Heritage, Heritage Centre at Lasham, because lots of the photos we've used tonight have come from there. Um, cut away by that very talented artist, Andrew Coates, and um, also Scale Soaring UK, and some pictures from whiteplanes.com. And so uh, with that, we'd like to draw the presentation to a close and um, ask uh, for any questions. Thank you. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.